Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to jump back to Proverbs. Uh, if you have an Old and New Testament, pretty much open up the center of your Bible, and after uh, Psalms is Proverbs. Just want to read two quick Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 12, starting with verse 2. It says, A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked devices he will condemn. This is self-explanatory, but it's also a warning. Proverbs helps us to lead the type of life that God intended us to lead because he created us. It's, it's pithy, it's wisdom literature, and I've heard many, many say that, well, the Bible is written just to believers because it's our instructions and what we need to do. But I would also argue that God's word is regenerative, even to an unbeliever who reads this, may be convicted of their lifestyle and may get them to draw it closer to God because of that godly conviction. And we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, when he speaks about the unbelievers coming into the assembly and what they see in the church. Uh, verse 3, he says, A man is not established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. The life of the wicked is a life of instability, but righteous has roots. The righteous has a strong foundation as long as it's grounded in the Lord. And once established, the righteous cannot be moved in more ways than are known. In Acts 20:24, 20, the Apostle Paul said, now remember, the Apostle Paul, there was many attempts on his life. He, was, he would go from place to place and he would get a lot of opposition. And he said this, he said, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to me, so that I continue to finish my race with joy. So we're not moved, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, okay? And these are truths that all of us need to understand in God's word. Now, the last time, you want to fast forward now to 1 Corinthians 14, which our study is going to be in, in today. The last time we um, spoke about the love chapter, uh, chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and most, even if they're not believers, understand that this is all about love. And I got a lot of good feedback, but I could say this. I mean, I can't take any credit. How do you teach about God's love and what true love really is? I mean, the material speaks for itself. It's good stuff. So if you didn't get it, I encourage you to get it off the website. Uh, now, understand this as we go forward. We speak a lot about denying ourselves and to be other-centered. But we, there's a, there's a two-pronged equation here because these last three chapters are a lot about being others-focused and denying ourselves. But I want to throw one more element in there, which really comes before that. To really know, to really understand that God loves me as an individual. And all you me's out there, it also applies to you. God loves me, the creator of the universe. He came and he sent his son to die for my sins personally so that I personally can have a relationship with God. Now, there's many in the world, and you've seen them. Um, they just do self-destructive things. There's be it addictions or abusing their bodies or... Uh, you know, just what, whatever the case may be. But what they need to understand is they have value. They have worth. We have worth as an individual. And once we become secure in knowing that, then it's easier to deny ourselves. Most who look for attention and, and are always trying to get someone's attention are really insecure. When I know that God truly loves me, now I can kind of blend in with everyone else in the body of Christ and serve him without trying to attack, uh, attract attention to myself. So understand, deny yourself when we have roots in understanding that we have value and worth as an individual, although it may be hard to believe, it cures a lot of the problems with us as people and with us as believers fitting into the church. 
Chapter 12 explained the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 13 showed that the gifts of the Holy Spirit really mean nothing without love as a foundation. And today, we're going to see how love works when using these gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit with respect to the problem in Corinth, the Corinthian believers who were trying to show off or in some cases completely manufacturing their high-profile gifts to the detriment of others. So we're going to jump in, 1 Corinthians 14, starting with verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So the first two words in this chapter are pursue love. And that's really foundational to everything else we're going to read. What does pursue love mean? Well, we spoke last Sunday about the 16 attributes or qualities of love. You know, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is long-suffering. Love endures to the end. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love does not parade itself. Love thinks no evil. So when we understand that, we understand love, and we're supposed to pursue love. Now, applying it to the problem in Corinth with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, if we pursue love in a church, we want to share we want to dispense those gifts. We want to help teach God's word and truth so that everyone can be edified and not just me. I uh, put the title to this uh, sermon today as E Pluribus Unum. And I had this title all week. And it wasn't only until last night that I was like, gee, I I've heard that before. Of course, it's on the money. But Pastor Anthony named 1 Corinthians 12, I think he did it a year ago, the same title. I'm like, so, okay, I stole it from Pastor Anthony. So now you know, he was the original one. But e pluribus unum is Latin, and it means out of many, one. Very simple, but so much meaning, right? Our diversity is celebrated and magnified when we act as one. I think it's interesting that God uses simple things in nature to show us spiritual truths. And you know I raise bees, I've said it so many times, but I can sit there for like 45 minutes and just watch the bees do their work. Well, these bees all have a function. There's guard bees, there's mortuary bees, there's scout bees, there's nurse bees, there's the queen bee, there's the workers, there's the drones, right? They all have a function. You will not find a lazy bee. You won't find a, a bee kind of sitting back with a, with a little cup and a little umbrella in it, drinking his honey and just watching everybody else work. It doesn't exist. Out of the many, out of the diversification in these bees, they act as one to survive the winter. They don't hibernate. They are actually active in the winter. However, if the bees decided one day they were all going to act as individuals, guess what? February, March, when I lift up the cover and look for my bees, they'd all be dead because they acted as individuals. Isn't that amazing? So the trick is for us willful human beings to look out for one another instead of looking out for number one, right? It's amazing how God uses bugs to teach us spiritual truth, right? Because he's implanted that in them. But the gift of tongues here, what is the gift of tongues? And we've gone through this. This is a, between 
a, a person, an individual in God. This is a spiritual language that they're speaking. They're speaking to God. It's in, a, it's in the form of a prayer. It's a, a self-edification. We are mind, body, and spirit. This is a, an incredible communion between the spirit and God, right? I asked a, a pastor friend of mine if he ever spoke in tongues, and he's been a pastor for decades, and he said, Joe, only once. I was in the shower and I was praying and all of a sudden I started speaking in tongues. He goes, and that was the last time it happened. Just him and the Lord. You know, just that, that, that edification one-on-one. Pretty impressive. Now, the question is, is it happening in private or is it happening in public? And once we understand that, that helps us understand the rest of the chapter because it can be a little confusing without those basic ground rules and foundations, right? If it's private, it's an awesome spiritual experience between a believer and his God alone. If it's in public, it's an awesome spiritual communication that other believers benefit when they get the interpretation and the understanding. But I wish that you all prophesied. Well, what is that? Well, we can see that it's a different gift and it's actually better, and we're going to explain that. A prophet, let's just go back to the Old Testament. A prophet had many functions. Remember, the Bible wasn't codified. They didn't have the printing press yet. Many average folk didn't have the scriptures, so they had to be taught, and they had to learn from the religious community, and especially the prophets. What the prophets would do is they would go into a public place, and they would speak to the people. They were really, literally, God's mouthpiece. God would give the prophet a message, and they would speak in what we would call real time to the folks, right? Happening right before your eyes. Sometimes it was corrective, Sometimes it was encouragement. Uh, Sometimes it was instructional, right? Now, as the prophets came into the New Testament, we did see some prophets, but a lot less. And Hebrews 1 tells us that the prophets proper really had a much narrower um, idea or function as we get into the New Testament, because now Jesus came, and we're supposed to learn by him, according to uh, Hebrews chapter 1. So prophecy really is a message from God to the church, and has a threefold purpose, edification, exhortation, and comfort. Well, let's go through these. Edification, it's to build up. And we've covered this before. In the Greek, the word has to do with literal house construction. We become built up in God's word. We become more mature. Edification. And that's what really the main function of a church is, for edification of the believers, to grow in their faith and their knowledge of God and his truths. Two, exhortation. Exhortation is an appeal. Exhortation is a, you know, it's like, come on, soldier, get up. You know, the battle, we're still fighting the battle. You, you help that soldier to get up. You help them to understand that we still need to continue to do God's work. It's an exhortation, a call to arms, so to speak. And three, comfort. We all need comfort. Even the toughest among us at times needs a pat on the shoulder and say to hear from someone, it's going to be okay. I know you're in the midst of the whirlwind. I know you're in the midst of the trial, but comfort. It's going to be okay. This is what God says in his promises to us. So tongues edify the individual while prophecy edifies everyone. And one who prophesies is better because the message now is all focused. Even though, again, even though tongues, you can have an interpreter, it's still limited. It's not really the equivalence of prophecy. And if you look in the book of Acts, initially... What did the folks around hear the disciples saying when they were speaking in tongues? They heard the message in their own language, but he says, praising the wonderful works of God. So this was more of a praise. And then Peter says, because some of the naysayers says, what are they saying? They must be drunk. And Peter explains what they're doing, 
right? And a lot of Bible commentators believe that Peter spoke in the common language of Aramaic as he said this to them, or Greek. But self-edification and self-worth are important, but in public settings, public edification is of a higher order. Now, is this any different than what we are taught as children or what we're taught as children? And think about adults now, Corinthians and believers today. We're taught as kids to share our food, to share our toys. It's rude if you whisper to somebody in someone else's presence, right? Communicate, be polite, look at others as equal to yourself. And in a relationship, it's not all about what I want. In a relationship, it's a two-way street. We're taught these as children. Should it change when we grow up? Or we become adults now? We should still have those same precepts. Should it change when we grow up and become part of a church? If anything, it should be exemplified. The Corinthians were adults using spiritual gifts, acting as children, bragging about the gifts, and not wanting to share them with others. I have something that you don't. My sneakers were more expensive than your sneakers. I have designer jeans and you don't. So they were really acting like children. Verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, or by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. So tongues are good, but he contrasts with that, saying that it would be better for me to speak to you revelation, knowledge, prophecy, teaching, revelation, the book of Revelation. It's the revealing, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Very edifying. Re revelation of God's mysteries. They were once former hidden, but now they're revealed. That's a good thing for us as believers. Knowledge, prophecy, teaching, teaching God's truth, learning good, solid doctrine. It's important. Now, he gives three examples. One is the music example. Okay, my question to you is, why were you just edified by the worship team? They play different instruments, uh, they read music, they, they sing the song, they're trained, they practice, so that you can be edified in your worship. Why? Two words, distinction of the notes and decipherability. If I was to go over here right now, Dave's getting nervous, and pick up his guitar. I don't play the guitar. I pick up the guitar, I start doing this and singing a song, and I'm not trained to sing. Is anyone going to be edified here? Probably half of you or three-quarters might leave before I'm done and hope when you come back next Sunday, I don't do that again. <laughs> Two words, distinction of the notes and decipherability. I have some gifts, but that's certainly not one of them. Two, the war example. Well, today we communicate by wireless communication. Even in Vietnam, they used uh, the radios, the packs on the soldiers' backs, and they would talk to call down air support. Wireless communication. However, if you look at the old battles, 
a lot of them were done through trumpet blasts or a bugler or some type of instrument. And what would happen is one tune, charge, right? Send the soldiers into battle to fight the enemy. Another tune would be retreat, right? And another tune would be something else. But if you can't, if the soldiers can't decipher the tunes, what is it? It's chaos on the battlefield. Half of them are going in, half of them are retreating, half of them are standing there not knowing what the note says. So that's the second example. It's the same with tongues. Speaking in tongues doesn't mean anything to me unless someone can interpret what they're saying. Now, this isn't just indigenous to evangelicals. Mel Gibson had this big push. I don't know if he's still doing it. He's put millions of his dollars into this big push to get the Roman Catholic Church in, uh, in California to go back to the Latin Mass. And it's a small movement, but it's a strong movement. And my question is, if the whole Mass is done in Latin and nobody understands Latin, what's the sense? Well, the idea is that it's more spiritual because that's the way they did it years ago. You come to church every Sunday, you leave, you don't know what was said and you're not edified. Even that small part, the homily, where the priest would open up the Bible and read the scripture, it's in Latin. Nobody understands it. There's no edification. The third example he speaks of is communication with somebody who's foreign or somebody who's not like us or comes from a different culture and a different language. Well, neither one of us understand each other if we don't understand the other's language. There's no communication. And I find this interesting. The whole origin of languages, and if you look, if you study languages, there's so many, um, they're so close, many of the languages, they go together and you can see that at some point in time they all came from a, a, a particular root. Now, in the beginning, in Genesis, uh, further into it, they try to build the Tower of Babel, and God's punishment for their uh, headstrongness and their uh, wanting to be like God and reach the heavens was he divided their languages. He caused division in mankind based on their languages. People would just go out uh, into their people group because they could understand each other. So there was now division between mankind. And what happened is in Pentecost and the gift of interpretation, you see an undoing of that. Well, the Corinthians were behaving as they were trying to cause that division again, which is not something that God wanted. 12 and 13, to be zealous for the gifts. But if we really want to do God's will, we want to further his ordained church. So if I'm going to speak in tongues in public, I need to have an interpreter. Now, just a few things here. Music and language, because a lot of this was, was Paul's examples. They op operate on the same principle. What I'm saying to you right now is in English. It comes out as a code. It's English. Somewhere in your brain, as the, words, as the sound goes into your ears, the words that I'm speaking to you go into a part of your brain, and there's a memory bank that says, I know that word. And every time I say a word, you're translating it. You're breaking the code, and you're understanding what I'm saying. Right? Everything operates on that. Even if you look at DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, which we all have, it contains genetic instructions to the development and function of all life. DNA. You ever see those computer models of the double helix? It looks like a ladder that's kind of been twisted, right? And you have your strands on the outside, and then you have your base pairs on the inside. Uh, adenine, thymine, thymine uh, guanine, and cytosine. And they all come together, AT, AT, CG, CG, AT, AT, CG, and there could be millions of them going down this strand. Every one of us has that. It's a code. And what happens is your body reads that code and makes new cells. Your body reads that code and keeps you alive. Because if your body couldn't understand the code, what happens? The organism, it dies. It doesn't know what to do. This is actually one of the better arguments to present to an evolutionist. I've had many discussions, and the one that they really have a hard time with is this whole DNA structure. 
because it's a code to all human life, all life. And they can't answer it because it's really a software program that needs to be interpreted, right, by the body. So, language, DNA, um, music, they're codes, and they're codes that are broken by the interpretation of the codes. So if we really want to be zealous for the Lord, we want everyone else to understand that code and to be built up, right? Remember, tongues is for me and not for we, unless there's an interpreter, but prophecy is always for we and not just for me. 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the result then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I also will sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For if you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. True. Speaking or praying in tongues privately is not understood with the mind. It's strictly a spiritual experience. Verse 15, Paul's saying that's great, but it's, ed- it's good to edify both the mind and the spirit. The apostle Paul said, yeah, I speak in tongues. My spirit is edified. I'm going to speak in tongues, but I'm also going to speak with my understanding. I'm going to sing in tongues, but I'm also going to sing with the understanding. So not only that my spirit, but also my mind is edified. We need both of that. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, the whole man needs to be edified there. And verse 16, how will someone who hears this say amen if he's not understanding what you're saying? The goal of the group setting, the goal today of the group setting is harmony, Unity, communication, agreement, and edification. So if I'm speaking to you in an unknown tongue, how will any of you say, at least in your mind, amen? I like the amens. We had a lady when she moved out to the Midwest, and uh, she was always, amen, amen. I loved it. Because, like, yeah, she was digging what I was saying. She likes the word, you know. I, can, I like amens. They're good stuff. But apparently back then it was a common place for an amen. So be it. Yes, I agree with you after something is spoken. Verse 18 and 19. Now, Paul puts this in perspective. Apparently, he did speak in tongues. But he would rather speak five words of understanding than 10,000 words in in a tongue because of his love for his brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, I kind of did a brief mathematical equation. Depending on, I speak kind of fast. Depending on how fast you speak or how slow you speak, 10,000 words could be definitely a one-plus-hour sermon easily. It's a a long time to speak 10,000 words. Now, he's saying, if I, let's just use me an example, because you could see me up here. If I spoke to you today, going at least an hour, and I just started speaking in tongues, you know, you, some of you would start looking at the ceiling, because you have no idea what I'm talking about. So the Apostle Paul says, it's better to speak five words that are understandable than 10,000 words in a tongue. As simple as this. We could look at the world around us. We, we prayed about some of the horrible things that are happening in our country and in the world and we could say that, the, that even the church in some places is divided. So God gives me a message of prophecy. Because of the current situation, I could say these five words. God says, he commands us to love, wait a minute. God commands love one another, five words. And that would edify you so much more than 10,000 words in a tongue. You see the difference there? 
You know, I'm speaking to you what God gave to me in real time. It's a message that you can go home and apply it to your life. I like the way the Apostle Paul explains these things. It's pretty good. But the Apostle Paul wasn't out to impress others and show off his spirituality. And my question to you is, and this is funny because I have to kind of give you the last, one of the last verses. He says, don't forbid tongues. Even after all this, the Apostle Paul says, don't forbid tongues. Well, you would say, is that contradictory? No. It was a heart issue. The, the Corinthians, that was probably one of the easiest things that they could have maybe even manufactured. The easiest way that they could, in a group setting, make themselves look more spiritual. Why the repetition, though? Something about tongues. If you've been a Christian at least three or four years or longer, you can all tell me about a situation, because I've had them too, where you went somewhere and somebody spoke in tongues, right? I see a lot of smiles, and everybody's waiting. But the interpretation is silence, and there's no interpretation. According to the Apostle Paul, according to God's word, that's not the way we're supposed to do it. So it's something to look at. Verse 20. Brethren, do not be... Do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people. And yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there comes in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is judged by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Now, you can look at this and even take it out of context. I love this. You can apply it to any portion of our life. Be mature in understanding. In our understanding, we need to be mature as adults. But be babies. Be innocent when it comes to malice or hurting someone or making someone feel lower or whatever the case may be. We need to be babies, innocent. Baby wouldn't hurt anybody, right? But as understanding, we need to be mature and be adults. Verse 21 is interesting because he references Isaiah 28 and possibly Deuteronomy 28. I read both of them. Where Israel was so wicked that God had to send a foreign invader to come and attack the Israelites and take over. Now, the, the Assyrians particularly had to humble Israel. But even then, Israel wouldn't hear. So, in a sense, the Assyrians came and, and took over the northern kingdom and they spoke in a foreign language. They spoke in their native tongue. And um, you can see the application he's trying to make. Verse 22, <clears throat> it's a little confusing here, and I try to make the best sense of it that I can. Verse 22, he says, Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So tongues is a sign to unbelievers. We see that in Acts 2 and Pentecost. Similar to the miracles in the Old Testament, uh, the catch was that the unbelievers needed to understand what was being said. Uh, and tongues for unbelievers it was a sign like a miracle that we're living in the last days and Joel chapter 2 alluded to this um, you know several centuries before the first century and what was supposed to happen as believers which we saw in Pentecost their interest was piqued out of this whole tongues thing and it, it stimulated them to look deeper into the faith so that's the best way I can understand that now but didn't just Paul, Paul say before that tongues was for the individual believer again we would 
the dichotomy is, is it private or is it public? That's, that's my best understanding of it. If it's private, it's between a believer and God. If it's public, yes, it will edify the church if there's an interpreter, but it will also be a sign to unbelievers so long as they can understand it. I hope that clears it up. Verse 23 through 25. So he speaks about a hypothetical where someone comes into the church and they hear the church or somebody speaking in tongues and there's no interpreter. And he says, won't that person who comes into the church say, are these people crazy? I got to get out of here in a sense. If all prophesy, the unbeliever will understand God's message and the word, be convicted of sin, give his or her heart to the Lord, and worship and say God is truly in this place. Big difference. Big difference. Big difference in the message. So our choice is to put on a show, maybe to deceive ourselves or deceive others, into thinking we're more spiritual as the Corinthians did, or be obedient to the Lord. Possibly give a message of repentance and salvation and bring more into the kingdom. Now, I, I, let me just say this as a, a humorous example, and I won't name where it was, but many years ago, you know, I was, I guess, a few years as a believer, and we heard about this church. We were already going to a church, but we heard about this other church. And at the time, my grandmother, my mother's mother, was disabled. She had a walker, and we had to kind of help her onto the walker, and everywhere she went, we had to get there early because it was a big production to get her seated and all. So, you know, we took care of her. It was me, my sister, my wife... Uh, my mother and my grandmother. So we went to this church. We all get seated. Everybody settled down. I'm open-minded. <laughs> well, first, there was singing going on. It was out of tune, but that's okay. I still remember the song. And more than one person was singing, like, uh, like trying to top each other. And then some ra raised up and started speaking in tongues, like one, two, three. And then, you know, all right, just be open-minded. It's okay. We're, we're kind of looking at each other. Then they open up a closet and they start pulling these big flags out, something that you would call an airplane down with, right? The air traffic controller guys on the ground. And uh, they started waving these flags. And then everybody took off their shoes and they were running up and down the aisle. And I'm thinking, God, could this get any worse? <laughs> and I think at one point, you know, we looked at each other and it just was, it was obvious that we couldn't get grandma up and out. And if we did, somebody might have run into her and knocked her over. So we decided to stay there. But I think I remember promising God, oh God, I promise I'll never church hop again. I promise if you get me out of here. <laughs> now some would say, you're quenching the spirit. That's a good word to use to bring your, um, someone who's trying to really discern that down. But the bottom line is, creativity or artistic liberty can be dangerous if it's not mixed with the truth. Look at the children of Israel. You know, Moses is taking too long, Aaron. What's going on? He's been up there for a while. Why don't we get all the gold together and melt it down and fashion a calf? You know, a calf brings milk. It, it brings life. It's a, a docile animal. Maybe they were using the calf to represent God. They, I don't think they would have said, let's make a, a, a statue of what Satan looks like. They were really concerned. But their artistic liberty was something that almost got them destroyed. You know, Moses came down the hill. He was, he was aghast because he knew God was looking you know, and uh, it was serious business there. There was punishment for that. But it was, it was a little artistic liberty. You're quenching the spirit, you know. But the thing is, if it's not mixed with the truth, it's just emotionalism, you see? And that's one thing we have to understand. Verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, 
and let him speak to himself and to God. See, he's not quenching the relationship between the believer alone and his God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The most important part of this is that this is really the last verse, in a sense. God is the God of order and peace. Therefore, in the church gathering, it's not, it's not like the circus. You know, you have the, the lion tamers over here and the jugglers here, and it's not a, a multimedia experience. It's so that we can be edified and so that we can focus on what God's trying to show us, and it needs to be done in order, and that brings peace to the worship. Verse 27 and 28, he says, If you speak in tongues... Uh, it must be orderly, there must be interpreter, or he says, be quiet. Pretty harsh words, but, you know, this is the way God wants it. Verse 30, he basically tells us that the Holy Spirit won't interrupt himself. If anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. This Holy Spirit, if he's working through us in our gifts, he's not going to interrupt himself. We all follow the same spirit, you understand? So number one, the Holy Spirit doesn't interrupt the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example. If Dave, if Dave comes up there and leads worship and he's on the second or third song, I don't, I don't run up here and barge in and start t- trying to talk to you while he's playing the music because I understand that he's being led by the Spirit and bringing us into worship. Likewise, when I'm up here and I'm using my gifts of the Spirit, Dave doesn't run up here and start playing the guitar when I'm not done finished speaking. The Holy Spirit doesn't interrupt the Holy Spirit. And if that happens, somebody's not following the Spirit. Verse 32, he speaks about having self-control and waiting our turn. And he says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, the spirit won't have the prophet interrupt another prophet because the spirit is is ultimately looking to have the person exercise self-control. And that's a fruit of the spirit, right? Self-control. So the prophets, the spirit of of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So if there's an outburst or some type of bizarre behavior... That wasn't the Spirit. That wasn't the Holy Spirit, because he wouldn't act like that. And verse 33, God is not the God of confusion, but the God of order and peace. And those truly who follow him will follow his directives. Now, understand this, that as believers, the the Apostle Paul says, we're ambassadors of Christ. What does an ambassador do of any country? Well, the president or the king or the ruler, the ambassador serves at their good pleasure. So what the ambassador does, the ambassador is sent out to represent that country. He doesn't get to the country and say, ah, the king's a jerk or the president's a jerk. I'm going to do my own thing. The ambassador serves at the, at the president's good pleasure, right? So as ambassadors, we want to give glory to God, not to ourselves. And this was the problem in Corinth. They were giving glory to themselves, and it was, it was very confusing. And he says this, even when the prophets speak... Even when someone is exercising their gifts of the Spirit, let the others judge. There's discernment there. And I think that in the church of God today in America, there's not a whole lot of discernment. I have no problem when somebody comes up to me and says, you know, you misquoted something or uh, I, I, I take issue with that. Can you help find that in Scripture for me, help make your case? I don't get offended. That's keeping me on my toes. And in a lot of churches, there's just some weird things that are happening and no one's holding 
the leadership or those exercising those gifts, they're not holding their feet to the fire. Let the others judge. Does this sound like solid doctrine? Yes. If not, why does it not? And, and make your case. So that's important. Not, not too much judged, uh, done today. Verse 34, the last few verses. If I don't do this right, I'm going to get like some size 7 lady shoes get thrown up uh, at me. <laughs> some of you have read ahead. <laughs> Let me finish before you do that. <laughs> Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are also to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently with decency and in order. That's kind of cool when you go into the, the, you know, the, the time period and the culture back then and understand what was going on. The church back then, when it originally started, was much like the Jewish synagogues. The, um, in the synagogues, the men and the women were, were separate. And that's just the way they did that. It was a cultural thing. And the church morphed over time, but it really started out that way. Um, <clears throat> we can only assume that with all the other distractions going on, this was just another distraction. So I could just picture if we were back then and I'm sitting with the men and my wife is sitting with the women and the guy says something that she doesn't understand. She says, hey, Joe, what does that mean? Mary's saying, hey, Gary, what's he saying? And you got all this crosstalk. Well, that was a problem, obviously. And that's why Paul addressed this. There's a big contextual issue. Now, it, what it, I'll tell you what it can't mean. It can't mean that women, as soon as they stepped into the church, mom zipped the lip, put on the masking tape, and then when they leave, they can take it off. That's not what it means. Because we've already read that the women have the right to exercise their gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church. We covered that in this book. So it can't mean that, otherwise there would be a contradiction. All right? How did I do? All right. <laughs> So, you know, listen, there was a lot of issues and, um, you know, at times the guys got some and sometimes the ladies got some and those who, uh, you know, the leaders got a lot. Uh, and, you know, this was a wayward church. And I believe that if 1 Corinthians wasn't written, the Corinthian church wouldn't have lasted long. It was, it was ready to implode upon itself. Any problem that you could imagine that a church had, the Corinthians had it. But it's good for us so we can see what is a church supposed to look like. This is a corrective letter. And what does 2 Corinthians look like, right? It's even better. And we're going to get to that after this. Verse 37. So if the Corinthians thought they were spiritual, it's kind of funny his, his way with words. He said, if you think you're spiritual, you ought to know that my words are from God because I'm an apostle. If you think you're so spiritual, you should be listening to this letter because the apostle is giving these words to you, right? And verse 38, I really like. He says, some are going to be ignorant. Let them be ignorant. <laughs> We're all going to run into people in our lives where you just can't talk sense into them. They're just ignorant, and they want to remain in that ignorance. We can just pray for them that God, you know, takes away the veil from their eyes. Verse 39. Again, after all that, he says, don't forbid tongues. Don't forbid tongues. He didn't want it to be forbidden. He spoke in tongues. He desired that they all spoke in, to spoke in tongues, but the way they were doing it was wrong. It was unbiblical, and it was confusing. And it was even more confusing to those who would come in who didn't know anything, and they'd just walk right back out and say, that place is, is nuts, I'm not going in there. 
And the last verse, remember, everything is done decently and in order. And really, again, we can take that out of the context of this book and apply it to our lives. Everything that we do as believers should be done decently and it should be done in order. That should be one, another one of our guiding principles. Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary, said that if we follow biblical principles, we never have to worry about breaking God's law. I really like that. Right? So, in closing, e pluribus unum, out of the many, one. I have to tell you, um, we are, in America, a society of individuals. Now, I see a huge shift from the, the life that my grandparents lived. My grandparents lived through the Great Depression, they lived through World War II, and they gave. They gave to their communities, they gave to their children and grandchildren, all they did was give. They, they lived a sacrificial lives. I'm very just impressed by the way the lives that my grandparents lived. And let me just kind of cross over here a little bit and, and let me muse a little bit. Um, this week, I heard a discussion on the radio station, 101.5, and I never called into a radio station before. And I said, you know what, I'm going to call in. I've got to say something. Because what happened was, and how do I make this non-political? I didn't ask you who to vote for. I didn't tell you. I didn't tell you who I was voting for. So I'd never do that. But let me just look at this retrospectively after the fact. Corzine was a guy who, I don't think he did a great job. But what he did was he wanted to give something to everyone. Every group that he could imagine, special interest group, he wanted to, in a sense, buy them so that they would vote for him. Now, I belong to a union. But I voted against the wishes of my union because I didn't agree with that philosophy. So when I got on the air, I talked about how my grandparents lived through uh, the greatest generation, how they gave, how they um, just sacrificed themselves for others. And I said, you know, our society has changed. We've become a society of takers. What about me? The next president, what's he going to do for me? It isn't about that. What can he do JFK? In his time, that would have been considered conservative. At his inauguration speech, he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Our society has changed. And a society will implode on itself if that's what we're all looking about, is me, right? What can my government do for me? What can my parents do for me? What can I get out of my church? What can my boss do for me? You see, I'm owed something. This is a society that we, everyone is owed something. Well, it's not true. Now, how do I relate this to what's going on? Because whether it's the Corinthians or whether it's Americans today, we can let that seep into the church, and it's not healthy. The question we should be asking is, what can I give to others? Not what can I get from my spouse, what can I do for my spouse? Not what can I get from my parents, but how can I take care of them as they get older? Not what can my church do for me, but how can I be a part of the body of Christ? And we covered this. It's, it's poisonous and it's deadly. And the, the article I read two uh, weeks ago from Pastor Ahn in Elizabeth, he said the same thing. He said the church is dying because the attitude is wrong of believers. So, in closing, the challenge is to take any church, Corinth, ours, the American church, take diverse people, cultures, languages, talents, spiritual gifts, social status, etc. Get them to work together by putting another above themselves in the body of Christ. How can I become the body of Christ, where do I fit in? And be effective in continuing God's organization, which is the church, in a world that unfortunately right now is run by Satan. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter. We thank you and we, you know what?